He's a career law enforcement officer, and he went through every cop's nightmare when he had to use deadly force. He's here to talk about the incident, what happened, what happened afterwards, and where he's at today. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. Calling us from the great state of Montana, Lieutenant John O'Brien, a member of the Butte Silverbow Police Department. Uh, Lieutenant O'Brien, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm going to dispense with the rank. Uh, is that if I call you John? Oh, yeah. All right, cool. We're going to talk about your career, your law enforcement career. You've been a career law enforcement officer for how long now? 20 years. 20 years, all right. Are you close enough to retirement yet? Can you pull the plug now? Yeah, any anytime I want. Oh, so you're in the, the great position of being able to tell people what you think, when you think it, when you want to, without fear of recourse, because you can leave. Exactly. One bad day away from leaving. <laughs> That's, well, that, that was what they used to say in Baltimore, too. The old timers like, hey, don't push me too far. I'll sign the paperwork right now. I'll turn in my stuff and I'll leave. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an enviable position to be in. But it took a lot to get there. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of your story, you are involved in a foundation with doing things to help law enforcement officers. Would you tell us about that, please? Yes, it's the Mason Moore Foundation. Mason Moore was a Broadwater County deputy that was shot and killed May 16th of 2017. And his wife, Jody, started the foundation approximately a year after his death. And then she had asked me to to come on board as an advisor since I was involved uh, with the pursuit and apprehension of the two individuals that that killed him. And I understand that we can't talk about that because that's still pending trial yes it's actually in front of the montana state supreme court right now to uh try to force him to take his medications to be fit for trial gotcha i I do know some of the details it's a horrific story i can tell you for as retired law enforcement officer it's nothing i'd ever want to be part of but these are things that we're forced into when you do your job we'll just leave it at that Uh, where can people get more details about the foundation uh, the Mason Moore Foundation uh, Facebook page or hit uh, their website. Okay. It's just under Mason Moore Foundation. You can Google search it. Mason Moore Foundation. Uh, do a Google search and find it. John, you've been doing this 20 years. And how do you describe your career? Is it something you love? Do you love being a cop? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, it's, it's what I always wanted to do. I feel it was a, definitely a calling for me. And I've done 20 years in uniform. 
did three years motor duty and the rest I've uh, made my way up through the patrol ranks. One of the things, I retired the rank of sergeant. It took a while to get to that rank. I was very proud of that achievement. So I can imagine what it took for you to get to lieutenant. But I'd worked in narcotics for, for several years and then scored high on the sergeant's exam. I was going to get promoted, so they moved me back to patrol. And I got to tell you, after all those years of working in a specialty unit, doing that day in, day out, it was like a breath of fresh air to throw on the uniform, get in a squad car, and handle calls. I actually loved that part of police work. Yeah, I've always loved that part of the job. And actually, I think patrol lieutenant was the best job that I ever had. What do you think is the best part about it? Why? Uh, I think that you're still you're involved in all the everyday, you know, you still get the adrenaline, you still get to all of that, but you get to help mentor younger officers and you kind of get to be, can be involved in the cases you want to be involved in. And the other thing too is I liked, I really liked the interactions with the public. Yeah. Granted, not everybody was having a good day. Most of the people <laughs> that we ran into or, or had to uh, service were having a bad experience, but that doesn't mean every encounter we had was bad. Right. No, exactly. The vast majority and, of them weren't. I, I, and I think patrols where you really get to make the most, uh, to help the most people and have the most effect. It's also, I would say, because I have a nephew who is starting with the police department in Virginia. He's going in the academy very, very soon. He's a, a former Marine. Uh, he's very excited. And he, of course, asked me about what I thought he should do. And, and I said, get as much patrol work as you can. Right away, they, they said, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to be a specialty. You know, like, learn how to be a police. Be in patrol. That's where you learn policing. And my daughter, one of my daughters, uh, just took the exam for the Buffalo Police Department. And uh, she's still early in the process. And I told her the same thing. Special units are great, but do your time in patrol. Yeah. Learn what policing is really all about. Yeah, I mean, work in patrol. I'm also on, uh, on our SWAT team, which is a you know, part-time assignment for small town. So, and that's usually what it is. Small town policing, you have to do everything, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a DRE and crash reconstructionist. And, and patrol lieutenant. Yes. So that's that's one of the things that we had a luxury of in a bigger city department. We had special units and specialists. You didn't have to do those sort of things. Yeah, no, I enjoy it though. I like to. I'm a high growth person, so I always like to start or learn new things and keep myself educated. Now, during your career, uh, you said one of the, the highlights for you is is helping teach and train and mold the new people. And I always say I was very lucky, very fortunate because the men and women who trained me when I was a rookie. Uh, the vast majority of them were Vietnam veterans, and we actually had a few career war veterans who were commanders, and they were really, really good at what we now call community policing, which back then it was just policing. Right, yeah, and we just, I mean, our, we live in a town of 36,000 people, and it's just a, we have a tight-knit community. Everybody knows everybody. But, but even being in a smaller town, but to, close-knit community, there's still no shortage of violence, is there? No, we're uh, we're a uh, rough uh, blue collar blue collar town. We have our fair share of everything that big cities have. In your career, in law enforcement, have you had to be in situations? I know the answer to this question, but for those listening, uh, in deadly force situations. Yes, I've been well. I've, yes, I've been involved in two um, where I've fired my weapon and been on the scene of others. Yeah, and I always tell people. Back when I was policing, we didn't have the term officer-involved shooting. It was I was in four officer-involved shootings in 10 years. The first two, I never even fired my gun. And that's a misconception a lot of people have, that you don't always fire even when someone else is firing. It's just not the right 
scenario, right situation, threats over, whatever it might be. And it's hard to describe when it occurs because it happens so fast. The last two, on the other hand, were long drawn out gun battles and they were horrific. Yeah, my first one was, uh, I had pretty much the opposite of the polar opposites of each other. The first one uh, was fast and in my mind, I would tell you that it probably lasted about five minutes, but watching the video was, um, the first shot was fired in uh, five feet and the last shot was fired at nine feet and it lasted nine seconds. The second one was a 110 mile pursuit. Shots were fired over several miles. Now, the one involved in the pursuit, that's the one that's currently uh, in front of the Supreme Court right now that we can't talk about. Yes. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the one shooting that you can discuss. I'm going to roughly paraphrase this. Everybody I've never known in police work, including myself, has never set out to start their day to say, today's a day where I'm going to get in a shootout. And today's a day where uh, I may have to end someone's life and I'm looking forward to it. None of that. I've never heard anyone ever talk like that. And usually these things come out of absolutely nowhere when you're least prepared for them. Was that a fair assessment? Yes, definitely. I mean, you want to be mentally prepared, but you never want to have to go through it. And, and real quickly, before we go to break, you got to be mentally prepared for it. You train for it, but you hope these things never, ever occur. Right. Yeah, I always hope for a peaceful resolution to everything. And unfortunately, most often, this is one of the things that people don't get with Hollywood and the news media. We as police don't have a lot of control over what other people do. No, like uh, I learned in, when I went to team leader school for the SWAT team is the bad guy always has a say in how the scenario ends. And oftentimes, or say quite often, the news media doesn't report it that way. They make it sound as if the officer has the last word of what no, occurs. Ever. Yeah, we, we react off of what they do and not That's the other right. way around. And there's a series of events that happened before that, before the end, but they always start the story at the end. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Lieutenant John O'Brien. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter, and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Lieutenant John O'Brien on the Law Enforcement Today Show from Butte Silverbow, Montana Police Department, correct? Yes. I would go back to an incident and um, I still find it very difficult to talk about some of these incidents I went through and I find it very difficult to talk about them. We're trained almost to talk about them as if we're testifying in court. Uh, And I know you're not going to do that, but there was a, a call for service that wound up ending with you having to take someone's life. Uh, start off with what happened in the very beginning. What kind of call was it? Uh, initially, it was, uh, it was dispatched as a domestic uh, with a wife and two kids inside the house. And uh, the male had armed himself with two handguns and was now arming himself with a rifle. 
That's some major red flags and alarm bells going off there, right there. Yeah, it's a nightmare scenario. And did you get any other information besides the fact that he's armed? Um, not initially from the dispatcher because I was um, I was actually really close to the area. Um, and what I did was we only had five officers working that night, and two of them were dealing with an arrest at a bar. So I made sure that I had the other another the sergeant was dispatched with me, and then I had another officer clear from her lunch, uh, from her residence from lunch and start responding. So that was basically half the department that was available that night is you and two others. Yes. That, yeah. Initially it was a three officers responding. The other two, once they heard how urgent the call was, they, uh, actually cut the guy loose and responded also. So it's not like you had the luxury of saying a lot of people love to say, well, first of all, when you get these calls, People think you have all the information at your disposal right away, and you don't. Uh, a lot no. of times, it, it, it's an unfolding process. You didn't have a lot of information when you were first dispatched, did you? No, just uh, the, that uh, the, 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 uh, there was a, the wife and two kids inside the house, and the dispatcher still had her on the line. And when you arrived, you were by yourself? Yes, I uh, arrived, and actually, I knew I was going to be ahead of everybody else um, by at least a couple minutes, so I parked actually at the end of the block and approached and shut my lights off and exited the vehicle and uh, checked out on my CAD unit. So, because everybody in Butte has a scanner. So I checked out on my CAD unit and activated my body camera and moved in towards the house so I could hear or see and listen, listen to what was going on. Now I know why we parked down the street and walked. For those who don't or aren't familiar with police procedure and tactics, why is that done? Uh, well, actually it's very apparent in the video because he, um, right before I can confront him at the door, he had actually shut the porch light off and was sticking his head out to see where we were at and how far away we were. So he was actually planning your arrival. He was waiting. Yeah, he was planning our arrival. Um, when I walked up, was walking up to the residence, all the lights were going on, off and on inside the house, which I found out later was, is well, the wife was on the phone with the dispatcher and, and the dispatcher never related, but she did tell the dispatcher is that he was trying to barricade and he was uh, shutting all the lights off to the interior of the residence and she was walking behind him and turning them all back on. Now, backtracking just a little bit, one of the reasons why we were always taught to, to park a little ways away and walk is because that marked car is a big target. And when they're yep. looking for the police to show up, if they're going to throw an ambush at you, that's when they're most likely to hit you. Uh, but you walk up, you can take cover behind trees, you can slow your approach and get a better grasp of what's happening as you're approaching the, the, the residence. Yes, definitely. And you saw a lot of stuff going on that was making the the alarm bells go off in your head. Yeah, and yeah. There was, and then this house is also, where it's located, is a nightmare um, location because, it's one, it's already elevated off the street, and then on the south side of the residence, the street drops off to about a six-degree angle, and then there's only one other residence. So for... For he had a huge tactical advantage um, if he would have saw us coming. Yeah, he was basically uphill from you then. Yeah. Uphill, inside, he could see people approaching better than you could see him, but you said that he was turning the lights off and on inside? Yeah, because it, uh, it was almost bar closing. It was one fifty-one in the morning when it was dispatched. Was this guy intoxicated too? Uh, yes, they later found out he, he was. But you didn't know that at the time? Not at the time, no. When I hear you saying that, first of all, 
one of the most dangerous things we do all the time, the two most dangerous car stops, especially the routine traffic stop, you think it's just going to be a tag light out. That's the one that can, can cost you your life. They all can, but that one can be very, very dangerous. And the other one are domestic family disputes for a variety of reasons. But you have someone who is, and I hate the term, emotionally disturbed. They're angry, they're out of control, whatever it might be, for whatever reason, mental illness, uh, intoxication, whatever, it doesn't mitigate or lessen the amount of threat to you and your people. Right, exactly. And it, I hate that, that that it happens. I'd also know in this case, the, the guy was a military veteran, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He has two different branches of military. And a lot of people don't get it, is that there's a, a kinship with law enforcement and our military. And a lot of our law enforcement people are, are military veterans, and we have an affinity toward each other, and we really try hard to look out for each other and, and take care of them, especially those who paid a heavy price mentally and physically. Yes, definitely. But that's, then we go back to the scenario where there's so much we ha- only so much we have control over. And when you got there, this guy was intoxicated. He is a military veteran, and he was armed with, you said, with two handguns and a rifle? That was the, yeah, the initial report was he had two handguns and a rifle. So when I approached, got to the front of the residence, I wanted to get as close as I could to listen to what, you know, what was being said. And right next to the front door, to the right of the front door, the, the, that window was completely like painted over, blocked out. And the window that was on the other side, you had about an eight inch slit in it uh, that you could see through. And while I was approaching the, the residence, I could see him walking through the, that room with a rifle in his hand with the barrel down and this is happening how quick oh it's fast i mean this is just as i'm just approaching trying to i wanted to take cover next to the door there was a little little cove that you know i could i wanted to get an immediate action team set up in there where he couldn't see us was my initial plan in meantime backup is rolling and heading your way yeah yep were they there on a scene before shots were fired or yeah, right when I was when I was first approaching and saw him with the rifle, I was moving to the hinge side of the door to the right because I'm left-handed, and I could see them pulling up and parking. And I was was trying to signal them. I was trying to stay off the radio. I didn't want him to know where we were at. Right, because the scanners, obviously. Yeah, so I was sig- trying to signal him with my flashlight to let him know I was at the front door. It's one of those things where you think that they see you, but and I find out later that they didn't see me. But they were actually parking and pulling up um, at that point. And when did it start to turn south? So I, I'm approaching the the, door, the the front door, which was a huge metal frame reinforced door. And I see him talking to her, and then he turns. And this is, he's, well, first he shuts the porch light off. So then I, that was my chance to get to move in the dark and get up towards the house. And as I'm approaching, I can see he's approaching the front door, and he doesn't have anything in his hands. I'm thinking, great, backup's here. If he opens that door, I can take him at gunpoint and put him on the ground and, you know, just wait for my backup or, you know, the other officers come over and secure him and we'll uh, go from there. Like you said, though, they always have the say in how, how the scenario ends. So at one point, he must have armed himself. Help me figure that part out. So as he's approaching the door, and like we were talking here on safety, he's, you know, watching movies or whatever. He's expecting the cars to come down the street. If that's what I'm thinking, he's thinking. He opens the front door and sticks his head out to see where the police cars are at. He doesn't even see me standing directly to his his uh, left. And I uh, engaged him uh, with verbal commands to tell him to get on the ground. 
And on that note, we're going to take a short break. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're talking with Lieutenant John O'Brien uh, from Montana. Uh, the rest of the story about the night uh, he had to use deadly force is coming up on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Return our conversation with Lieutenant John O'Brien uh, from Butte Silver Boat, Montana Police Department. Uh, John, we're talking about this night. You get a call. You've got an intoxicated military veteran. It's a domestic situation. He's armed. He's heavily armed with two guns, two handguns, and a rifle. Before we end the break, you said that you were standing inside the, inside the door, and he stuck his head out. And didn't even see you there, and you tried to engage him with verbal commands to defuse the situation. Yeah, well, and at this point, he didn't have the rifle, and there was no web, no handgun visible um, in his hands, and that's why I decided to take that opportunity. But also, what I uh, forgot to mention, and as he is approaching me, he's wearing a uh, load-bearing vest with rifle magazines and uh, a hatchet and a knife. Um, so he's, he's prepared for for he's, conflict. Yeah, he's dressed for battle. This would be the perfect scenario. If he had just responded to your commands, the whole thing would have been over with. He probably got mental health treatment, probably maybe got a little bit of probation time or something else and had been over and done with, right? Yeah, as far as like the follow-up investigation, um, he was actually making some suppressors and would have had some trouble with some probably some federal agencies. But that night, so yeah, he would have been on the ground, handcuffed, uh, brought in for probably a crisis response counseling and maybe, you know, uh, a misdemeanor partner family member assault and yeah he would have been would have been over but he didn't follow your commands obviously no he did not what did he do um so i told him i said you know get on the ground and he said and took a step back and i said get on the ground and he said when he reached behind his back and at this point in my mind i'm he's thinking he's going for one of his two handguns and then the next movement i see from his hand i can see a tan uh, handgun starting to come up and I already had him at gunpoint and at that point my vision went from looking at all of him to I could just to his upper thoracic and this is where my video shows how fast it was but in my mind I could feel in my every squeeze of the trigger I could feel the I could feel the every round that cycled from my handgun I hear him I didn't hear him say anything but I see him turn and the wife when he initially was at the door, was by the doorway next, standing next to him. So initially, I thought when he turned, he was turning towards her. I had actually moved back and got covered during the initial burst, and then I turned back to engage him because I thought he was going after her. And he was on the floor actually firing at me uh, through the door at the doorway, and rounds were actually ricocheting around me. How close were you two? Uh, the first shots was five feet. I mean, that's, that's so close. And it, I, I don't know the statistics, but they say that most police shootings are within seven feet of each other. Seven feet, yeah, like 80, like 80%. And they're done and over with in, in seconds. But this one continued on. So he was going into a prone combat position and firing at you 
And what were you doing? No, actually, what he did, what, what he did is I fired. What actually, what happened, I found out, you know, later, is when I, my first initial rounds, uh, the, one of the rounds went through his heart and hit him in the spine and actually uh, disabled him. And when he, when I thought it was turn him turning to go after her, he, he was actually falling and rolled into the couch and was propped up against the couch um, in a seated position firing at me. So he, he was seriously injured. And yeah. maybe even mortally wounded at that point, but still he was he was firing. He wasn't giving up. He was hit, yeah, he was hit uh, four times. And uh, once through the heart and the spine, the torso, one round through his right hand because he brought his hands, you know, together in the, in the combat shooting position. And then he, when he rolled, I fired two more rounds and hit him in the leg. One of the things you said that I think is very important and that a lot of people don't tend to understand is that things started to slow down for you, your observation. Uh, and and yeah. you you actually, time perception slowed down and your your focus became very tunnel vision-like. Yeah, I went to, and I went to the area that, that I was uh, shooting in. And did you notice anything else? I mean, could you, they could be doing cartwheels behind you. You probably wouldn't have noticed it. I didn't. You know, I saw the upper thoracic and I had uh, auditory, you know, exclusion. I mean, those gunshots sounded like whispers. I mean... I didn't think about it until after it was all over, but one of those 45 rounds went, whistled right by my ear, you know, but obviously in the middle of the fight, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was in survival mode. So I've read I somewhere register. that the body cam video, uh, they, they slowed it down in court and they could actually see, uh, within inches of you shots from him ricocheting off a metal door frame. Yeah. When I moved into the door, um, for cover, yeah, he was firing, and the do- the rounds were ricocheting off, and you can see them in my body cam where two rounds impact the door frame and ricocheting. The state investigator said that when they figured out the angles, they didn't know how the- I wasn't hit. They couldn't even figure out how the- those rounds went around me. One of the things also, that obviously, you had that we never had was the body cam videos. And yeah. I recall vividly my last two shootings that – and it's hard to describe, so it makes sense to people. They may think that you're trying to lie, you're not telling the truth, or be. you're really not clear about what happened. And it's almost as if time goes totally out of out of whack. So oh, it's like I couldn't tell you how many fi- shots I fired until later on, until I actually counted how many were out. I, I wasn't a, factually aware of anything at that point. It took a while did the body cam video help you with that or do you have a chance to even see it before you had to start talking to people? No, uh, you know, the department actually treated me really well through the whole process. Um, I actually did, was able to download it and watch it before anything happened um, with the investigation. But watching it, like what my mind had just perceived without letting to register, you know, because we get a we get a 30 or 72 hour uh, window before we have to give a statement. It's amazing, like watching that video, you're almost like, whose video is that? Like it wasn't even happening to you. Yeah. I mean, what was pictured in my mind, it was, like I said, in my mind, it was a five-minute gunfight, and that thing, that video was over in seconds. Did it seem as if the actual facts of what you saw was different from what your mind comprehended at the time, or were they spot on? No. Well, I mean, the the body camera's giving you that, you know, that wide-angle view of everything. And, you know, your, your mind and your focus, because when I'm shooting, it went in, and then... When I, you know, when he was down, he, after he fired his rounds and I came back after the second burst, he was still trying to get the hand, the gun up and to fire, but he couldn't get his hand to work. 
he was actually the the look that he was given his hand the the hatred and that not being able to, to fire at, at me and kill me was just will never never come out of my mind but I was able to move in at that point and uh, I stepped on the gun and slid it out of his hand and was able to get him handcuffed and of course this is something that a lot of people don't understand is right after you shoot someone then you go right into life-saving mode yeah I mean you know and that's what you know and then in, in my mind that's what the public always expects from us we're professionals this isn't personal as much as you need to set that aside yeah and, and, and go to life-saving mode because that's what that's what you know society demands of us Another thing that I always heard drilled through in my head since, since the academy days all the way through is that you will revert to your training. You will yes. not even have a chance to think about what you're doing. You will respond, and you respond with how you're trained. Was that the scenario with you? Absolutely, yeah. You know, where I've been fortunate is, you know, being on the SWAT team and being able to attend, you know, close-quarter combat and, and you know, room clearing and, Simunitions training and stuff like that um, was a huge benefit. And even though I couldn't explain why I did the things I did, you just, <laughs> it was what you were trained to do. Yeah. I, I remember uh, watching a video and it involved a bank shootout in Miami uh, with FBI agents. And I believe one of the FBI agents was shot and killed and he was dumping spent brass from his uh, handgun into his palmer's hand, which they did at the range. And we used to do uh, routinely every time we would practice and then throw it in a bucket. And it became like muscle memory. From that point on, we never ever did that again. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by Lieutenant John O'Brien. Butte Silver Bow, Montana, Police Department. Uh, John, thanks for being guest on the show. Yeah, thank you. And and thanks for being willing to talk about this scenario. I'm going to give you a, a brief overview. Uh, received a call for a domestic dispute. This man, who turned out to be a military veteran, uh, was heavily armed with, with two handguns and a rifle. He was intoxicated. Uh, he was determined to engage police in a gunfight, probably looking for... Uh, what a lot of people want to do is they want, they call suicide by cop and or going out in a blaze of glory uh, in a big firefight that when they get that way, when a person for whatever reason decides that's what they want to do, what recourse do you and I as cops have? None to defend ourselves. That's the only thing. And that's, I, I've never met any police that ever had to use deadly force while defending themselves that ever felt good about it. No, I mean, I feel good that I reacted the way I was trained and that, you know, the most important thing to me was that the other four guys that were working with me that night went home. Right. You know, so they survived, you survived. But yeah. the thought of uh, having to kill somebody, and this is something the media always seems to get wrong. They love to portray police as uh, wanting to shoot people and wanting to kill people, and I, I've never, ever seen it. I've the first time I hear someone saying it would be the first time I've ever seen it or heard of it. No, I mean, I, I get paid whether, you know, my pay is the same, whether we 
use no force or he peacefully surrenders or, you know, whatever. And I definitely didn't want these images and, you know, to live with the rest of my life. So. No. How, how was the aftermath? You said the department was very, very good to you. Yeah. Not all of them are. Uh, no, and no, we were, we're very fortunate. That's one thing I have to give our administration is they, uh, they've always treated every guys well in these situations. And one of the things that happens quite often, people don't seem to understand, is that when an officer has to use deadly force and shoot someone, whether the person lives or dies, the officer is a suspect in the initial report. And the defendant, uh, the person they shot, the bad guy, uh, is the victim. Yeah. And that's a role reversal that I, I can tell you for me was just very, very uncomfortable. And, you know, and luckily I, you know, I do through my FTO and through everything I trained other guys and, you know, and myself and what was going to happen. So everything that happened after that point, I had prepared myself, I think, as best as I could, like, you know, what the steps would be. And, you know, the department and the state investigators made it, you know, a lot easier to go through those steps. And you had, what, about 72 hours before you had to give a statement? Yeah, 72 hours. Yeah. But, you know, our administration, uh, as soon as they, because I was the shift commander, I called made the call and had the administrator come out. I didn't shut my camera off until he arrived on scene. And as soon as he got a quick synopsis of what happened, um, he called, he actually called our union president and then uh, told him, ordered him to call our uh, legal defense. Which is something you need. And a lot of people don't understand that either because and that's, it, and not it's only a it pending criminal benefit, investigation. It's a huge uh, relief mentally. Yeah, it is. It, it, it is. And you brought up mentally how were you afterwards? Um, you know, I was good. You know, you know, as good as you could probably could be. It was, you know, I, I, you know, I knew what I knew what the symptoms of the stress were going to be, and I tried to, you know, avoid the media, uh, stay away from alcohol, stay away from caffeine. Made sure I worked out every day because I knew I had to get that cortisol out of my system, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, kind of stayed away from the department. But, you know, everybody, you know, the department reached out, uh, either text or called or you know, stopped by and. People drop dinner off or, you know, gift cards to go eat and, you know, to, to make sure that you didn't have to you know, worry about those little things. Was there any nausea or anything like that immediately afterwards? No. no I was uh, I was kind of expecting that. You know, after, immediately afterwards, I thought, um, honestly, that I had been hit and I just didn't feel it yet because of the adrenaline. Oh, I've like, done that. Where, uh, did you pat yourself down looking for blood? I, well, I kept sweeping. I kept sweeping myself for uh, holes. Yeah. And... I'm not um, laughing at you, John. I'm no, just because I, uh, I I haven't thought of that in a very long time. I actually had people. I'm I'm, I'm telling them, look, at, check me out. Make sure I'm not shot. Make sure I'm not shot. Right. Well, really we were doing no that. Idea. Um, and actually, the wife was in the living room with us. It was kind of broke all the tension inside the house. Um, I, was, I kept sweeping myself, and the, one of the other officers kept staring at me because she was like doing the same thing. Like, man, you got to be, you know, there's a hole somewhere. And then the wife looks at me and goes, "Are you okay?" I said, am I okay? And I said, are you okay? And then we like, both kind of chuckled. But it was, I was like, wow, I mean, you're, thank you for being that concerned for me. That's the rarity. Yeah. I mean, and actually, I mean, if I have time to talk about it, I mean, that, that family, um, probably one of the biggest things that helped, um, honestly, not only with me, but with our crew, is the, uh, the way that the, that family treated us, the way that the military treated us. What did they do? His brother was uh i think in the national guard i don't run it really i know that they he served full-time i believe but i never did get a chance to meet him he showed up in our uh before i even went home he was in our briefing room or in our uh, lobby of our police station uh, in in his military uniform you know everybody kind of took that deep breath of oh you know what's going on um 
the only reason he was there was he wanted to make sure that we were okay and that uh he wanted to know that we were okay and he wanted uh he wanted, he wanted us to know that uh, they the family felt no ill will that's amazing yeah and well i mean not only that then a couple months later um his parents and his siblings all sent me a christmas card wow um, you know that they were praying for me and that they all signed it and then at christmas time uh hid the wife and actually the two kids that were upstairs so sent me a Christmas card. I'll be honest with you, John. That's that's making me misty eyed because I I never would have expected that response. It's I didn't just either not because you know, you're used to the media. Yeah, you're used to the media. You're used to everybody. Um, you know, you're just taking that deep breath of you know here comes the lawsuits, here comes everything else. And you would think that there'd be so much animosity. And I'm sure that they were upset and angry. That that was their loved one. I'm sure, right. but they also realized that that you guys are being reactionary, that he yeah. was in totally command of what he was going to do. And and that's the, the you know, exactly pretty much what they said, that they knew he had some problems and that uh, not only inside that house did he engage us there with that rifle and those two handguns, but he had fallback positions with an AR-15 and a shotgun. Um, he had 10,000 rounds inside the house and he had a bunker set up in the basement to fall back to. So he was, he was bound and determined that he was going to go to war. Yeah, I, and I mean, my administration and I think we all agreed that if it wouldn't have ended the way that it did, that we would have been burying police officers. And that's just that's just not a scenario that that um, I can even begin to process. Uh, no, I, I like you. They've been through way too many line of duty funerals, and um, they all have a heavy emotional impact. And I'll tell you honestly, uh, being in a scene of of violence where people took their last breaths, whether it be usually the hand of another drug dealer it those things took a toll on me they really did oh no exactly you know, yeah and we were we were there doing first you know first aid and we need to get that so the thought of that you being there when a guy died because of you having to shoot him i don't understand how one processes that and gets to be I don't want to say okay, it's an overused term, but it gets to be where they accept this is what happened and now how do I move on? You know, I guess my mindset was, is, you know, like I said, you know, I think we had the best outcome that we could have. We didn't want that outcome. He chose that outcome. But I didn't have to go knock on anybody's door. Nobody had to come to my house and, and wake up my wife and tell her what happened. And how is his family now, the wife and kids? You know, they moved out of town. Um, you know, I, I certainly hope they're doing okay. And then getting back to like the military, um, the family requested full military honors for his funeral, and the uh, commander of the National Guard called our administration, and they were not going to allow full honors unless I consented to it. And what was your response? I, I said absolutely. I said it's for the family. You know, they, they at that point had treated us, you know, well. And I said, and you know, and it's nothing personal. I mean, that's what people forget too. It is nothing personal. You know, he wasn't shooting at me as a person. He was uh, obviously not in a good place in life and targeting my uniform. And I wish there was something that you could have done that we could have resolved this another way, but there really was nothing else. The, uh, again, so much of what police encounter is beyond a control and you have to react. And that's all you, you only really can do. Before we leave, again, give people the information about the foundation where they can get more information. Yeah, uh, Facebook is uh, probably your best way. Uh, and you can definitely like the page. There's some. Uh, now uh, they have some merchandise that they sell, but all the money goes to, um, they do a big dinner every year. They goes to, uh, purchase uh, equipment for small departments that can't afford anything. So that's the Mason uh, Moore foundation. 
Yes. Yeah. Last year we gave out twenty five thousand dollars to departments, and you know we're obviously hoping to grow it and get it bigger. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll definitely have you back when you can talk about the, the second situation. We'll have you back. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. (laughs) 